Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cross Pods podcast. I'm Lydia Champole, and this week we will be playing you an episode of the School Britannia podcast, hosted by Claire and Eleanor. School Britannia is a show serving you British history gems from the perspective of two Aussie upstarts. Things such as which university in Britain was the first to allow women to study medicine? And remember that time that America invaded Britain? Well, you could cover all of this and more on their episodes. All right, let's jump right in. School Britannia, the podcast where two Aussies teach Brits their own history. This is my friend Ellie. And this is my friend Claire. Ellie, have you noticed that I call you Ellie in the intro and I call you Ellie in everyday life, but throughout the episodes I always call you Eleanor? It's <laughs> because we're talking about history and it's a very serious subject. Yes, very formal. So you should use my serious <laughs> name. I should, yes. Well, Do you have a longer longer version of Claire? Clarity? Clarity? <laughs> I tend to lengthen people's names with a thee because Clemmerine? my brother is Timothy. <laughs> oh, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. No, it's just Claire. I got the opposite with, like, I got a fake shortening to Claz, which I thought oh, was the Claz. Claire was just naturally shortened to until I grew up and found out no one else called Claire was called Claz. <laughs> that feels like a it's pretty classic me. Australian shortening. Yeah, well, because we had a Laws in our family. Oh, yeah. sister Laws and Claz. Yeah, so Claz it was Laws. natural. But Tim didn't get Toz. No, it didn't. It'd be hilarious. We Tim, so it's like Timothy. Yeah, yeah. It's not. It's not nice when you don't have a long name. You can screech at someone when they're in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, single syllable names. Mm. But uh, talking of your name, Eleanor, I haven't said it in a while because I haven't seen you in a while. No, I know it's been too long. Australia, yes, visiting my family. It's been lovely, but I have missed you. Oh. I have missed talking history with you. Yes, I know. It was a too long a stretch. It was. Never again until oh. later this year. <laughs> and it's lovely to record some fresh episodes yes. with you. Yes. We've had yeah. lots of fun sharing the other ones while I was away. Yes. We pre-recorded. It'd be nice to do this in real time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Nice. I also realised I had kept saying, you can find us on YouTube. And it turns I had lied. <laughs> <gasps> we weren't. I had not put anything on YouTube because nice. I was lazy. But I have now put us on all the episodes on YouTube. If you would like to listen to our voices with a static image of our logo Mm. in front of you at the same time. We could have put a static image of your cat gremlin Mm. instead. Maybe we'll mix it up. In the middle, a picture of gremlin. Just just flash up. up. Yeah, yeah. You have to diligently watch the whole (laughs) thing to see the little gremlin Easter egg. Oh, yes. Oh, no, I want to do that. (laughs) Excellent. So, Ellie, what history tidbit do you have for us today? Well, Claire, did you know that women haven't always been able to study and practice medicine in the UK? No way. Truly. Truly. It's quite recently that they were allowed to study medicine. People regulated women's behavior in society throughout history? I know. Madness. It's mad, but it's true. (laughs) And we're here to talk about it. 
So, um, guess what? The University of Edinburgh was the first British university to admit women as medical students. That's awesome! I know. Well, to admit women at all, and they just happened to be... (laughs) They happened to be medical students. Cool. Do you want to guess the date? Ooh. I know they were really big into the anatomy scene Mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to say the 1870s. Ooh, very close. How close? 1869. Oh, damn! Yeah, so close. well done. <laughs> you should do a British history podcast. I should. Yeah. <laughs> so, in 1540, way back, Henry VIII granted the charter for the Company of Barber Surgeons, which is a terrifying profession I know, name. I love it. Barber Hacking surgeons. off limbs, ripping Ooh. out teeth. So good. Yeah. Yeah. Cut yeah, I think yeah. I'd be good at that job. <laughs> um, so, basically, that made being a barber slash surgeon, a profession, and they regulated it. Before that, just any old person. Pretty much. And once it was regulated, they immediately specifically barred women from (laughs) professional practice. Right. It's like the first thing they did. Do we know how many women were barber surgeons before it was regulated? No, that is a really good question. That would be fascinating to find out. Yeah, Yeah. I don't know. I think you sort of think of women as being like herbalists a bit, don't you, rather Midwives. Yeah. Things um, that could be confused with being a witch. Yes, exactly. But no, all I know is that they were specifically barred from being doctors from about 1540 onwards. Cool. And then in 1869, the University of Edinburgh decided that they were going to admit seven women to their medical degree Great. course. Seven specific women, or they had seven slots for seven well, women to apply to? it's quite a funny story, because cool. there's this amazing woman called Sophia Jex Blake, who basically went to the University of Edinburgh and was like, hey, I want to study medicine. I'm really fucking smart. Please, can I study medicine? Yes, Here is the evidence that I'm really smart and I want to study medicine. Oh, and they yes. were like... And the medical school was like, yeah, sure, you can come study medicine. But then the university board was like, look, and actually I think I have the quote here. It's pretty funny. So she applied to study medicine in 1869. And even though the medical faculty approved her application, the university court rejected her, saying they could not make the necessary arrangements in the interests of only one lady. Ugh. So Jax Blake went out and got more ladies. She's like on a recruitment drive. That's awesome. So she put an ad in the Scotsman um, for more women to come and join her to study medicine. And she got all these responses. And six women basically said they were really keen to study. So their application was approved because the university was like, oh, there's seven of you now. It's worth the effort. So it's worth the effort. Put ankle guards in? I don't know. Who knows? (laughs) What what necessary? Well, the necessary arrangement was that they had to have separate classes. Pretty much. So they weren't allowed to be in the same classes as men. Right. Yeah. So these women were called the Edinburgh Seven. Um, and that's their like name. I want to join that game. I know, doesn't it sound I know fucking I would ruin cool? the name by joining it, but I won't. And the seven people were Sophia Jax Blake, the, the leader of the gang, Isabel Thorne, Edith Petchy, I love that name, Matilda Chaplin. Helen Evans, Mary Anderson, and Emily Bovell. Oh, Emily Bovell. Emily Bovell. That's incredible. So on the 2nd of November, 1869, they signed the matriculation roll and the University of Edinburgh, Edinburgh became the first British university to open its doors to women. That's great. Pretty great so Good far, right? But, of course, they weren't the first women to study or practice medicine in history. Mm. Of course. So in the 4th century BCE... 
go on way back now. Yes. <laughs> this woman, they think, it's possibly a legend, but her name was Agnogdesi. I hope I'm saying that right. Agnogdesi. Um, and she was a physician in Athens, but she had to work disguised as a man because women were forbidden oh. from practicing medicine. That's a theme throughout this whole story. Yeah. <laughs> But she was super popular because all her female patients really liked her because she was like, I know what really, a fanny is. Yeah, knew what she was doing. <laughs> yeah. Knew how to talk to women in some strange and naive way. And all the male surgeons and doctors got really jealous because she was taking all the female clients. <laughs> so they took her to court and her wow. gender got revealed. Well, Oof. she was like forced to reveal her gender. That's bad. But the women of Athens all came together and because they loved her so much and she was acquitted. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So yeah. it's kind of a story, but I like that to just start it off. Mm. Um, then, and this person was real, Dorothea Bucca, Dorothea Bucca probably, lived from 1360 to 1436 in Bologna and she held the chair of medicine and philosophy at the University of Bologna for 40 Shit, yeah, years. Dorothea, good yeah. on you. It's amazing. And there were actually heaps of examples of women practicing medicine in Italy. Like, they were really cool with it from, like, nice. the 11th century up till today. Italy's been like, yeah, ladies, come do medicine, please. Awesome. Yeah. Which I didn't know that. Which is really cool. So, turns out the UK is just particularly crap Backward. when it comes to women practicing medicine. <laughs> then, over in Korea, we have Jang Guom, who was the first female royal physician in Korean history. Cool. Um, she was born in the 15th century and she took care of King Jungjong's family, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, and damn. She got given like this special title because she was so amazing. She got called <sighs> the Great, basically. Oh, fuck yeah. Incredible. Um, another Dorothea, Dorothea Erxlblem. Erxlben? <laughs> Good. Yes. Doing well with the pronunciation tonight. It's difficult. Should have practiced this more. <laughs> My sister, when I went home, lectured me, and she was like, you know you can look up the pronunciations of things on the yes. internet. I know. <laughs> I was like, I know. So I just, bad. Oh, we I suck. Try. I'm sorry. <laughs> no one has specifically picked me up on anything yet, so until that happens... Please do not do that to us. <laughs> Don't do it. Yes. Fragile, sensitive little bean. Dorothea Erxelben was the first female medical doctor in Germany. So she was instructed in medicine by her father from an early age and received her MD from the University of Halle in 1754. Oh, good on it. Which is pretty fucking early. Yeah. Um, then you've got Marie de Rocher, who was a Brazil Brazilian obstetrician, midwife, and physician. Um, and she was awarded her medical degree from the Medical School of Rio de Janeiro in 1834. Cool. Which brings us up to about where we're at in Edinburgh, yes, 1869. Yes. But there was another English woman who pipped the Edinburgh Seven at the post. But it's a crazy story. So she studied medicine before them, but she had to be super wily about it. And right. really, like, really sneaky to make it happen. So Elizabeth Garrett Anderson was the first woman to qualify in Britain as a physician and a surgeon. She did this in 1862, so the Edinburgh Sevens in 1869. Yeah. Five years before the Edinburgh Seven got into Edinburgh Uni. She basically, she had to work the system. So she studied medicine privately. So she employed a private tutor wow. to teach her medicine. How rich was she? No, not at all. That's really? the crazy thing. I'll oh. tell you more about it in a bit. But okay. she was like 
not, not at all. I don't know how she got the money. She was not rich. She worked as a nurse at Middlesex Hospital and she just talked her way in to interesting places. So she talked her way into surgeries and she started helping out yes. with surgeries and she just like, you just got do not into... be annoying enough and people will let you do yeah. stuff just to shut you up. Exactly. And she talked her way into the hospital's medical school. They wouldn't let her study everything, but they let her study Latin, which was really important at the time. And a few other bits and pieces that were really useful. Um, and then this is the best bit. So she's doing all this study on her own, basically just self-directing. And then she was awarded her credentials because she found a loophole in the admissions policy of the Worshipful Society of Apothecaries, who had to admit her because there was a clause in their charter that basically said you couldn't discriminate based on sex. So they let her in because they had to let her in, <laughs> and then they immediately changed their regulations so that no more women could follow her. Jesus. So they just, like, slammed that. They just hadn't realised that there was yeah. that loophole until <laughs> Elizabeth came along. And they're like, oh, crap, we have to let this chick in. But no more. No more. Good on you, Elizabeth. I know. It's incredible. So. Women are so good at that, like, knowing the system. It was just incredible. And, like, against all odds. So she managed to become a doctor. But no hospitals would hire her. No private medical practices would hire her because she didn't have a penis. Um, And we know how important that is to being a doctor. Like So important. It's, like, so hard to, like, take someone's temperature if you don't have a dick. Yes. I've heard. Yes. Because the penis is actually the thermometer (laughs) of the human body. Gross. (laughs) Oh, that went too far. far. Sorry, everyone. (laughs) So, she was like... It. I'll start my own practice. Yes. Ugh. And it had to be in like a really shit part of town, but she did it. And she, she wasn't super popular at first because she was a woman, but luckily there was an outbreak of cholera in 1860. <laughs> Yay! Yay! <laughs> and people were forced to come to her because they were desperate. <laughs> and then they were like, oh wow, this, this woman actually really knows what she's desperate doing. Desperate times calls for, for women desperate doctors. female measures. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So everyone was like, oh, she's a really good doctor. And so her business took off and she became a really good doctor. Wow. So then this is a side note in answer to your question about her being rich. So a few of the women I've mentioned so far have been pretty privileged. So they had fathers who were doctors or they grew up rich. Um, But not Elizabeth Garrett Anderson. She was born in Whitechapel, which is like where Jack the Ripper is from. Um, It's a brown card on the Monopoly board, so we know it ain't wealthy. It's (laughs) crap. I'm sure it's lovely now. I don't know. I've never been to Whitechapel. It's London. It's definitely expensive. It's really posh now. (laughs) And she was the second of 11 children, and her mum and dad were pawnbrokers. Wow. So she, and she was a suffragette, and she was, I know, and she was the first ever female mayor in Britain. Good so on she's her. like she's not a posh Damn. lady. She worked her fucking ass off basically yes. to become the first doctor and the first mayor in the UK. Isn't that mad? Yeah. I want to know more about her. She's yes. really incredible. So anyway, thanks Elizabeth. Back to the Edinburgh Seven. So when we left the Edinburgh Seven before we took our trip through history, they had just been accepted into Edinburgh Uni. Yay! How great is Congratulations, that? Congratulations, lady. So good. So they got a nice little house at 15 Buckley Street, Aww. and they started class. We should go visit and do a little pilgrimage. Yes. <laughs> I think there is a little. Well, hopefully there's a little plaque there better out the be front. A plaque. Yeah. We'll just um, stick a bit of sticky note there and just be like, <laughs> a thing happened here, y'all. <laughs> y'all. <laughs> So, as I said, their classes were taught separately to the men, and because of that, they had to pay more 
for their medical degrees because they were smaller classes. Jesus Christ. I know. Yeah, and there was like less people to absorb yeah, the cost. Yeah. But yay, they were studying medicine. That's good. But then, but then, there's always a catch. In March 1870, the Edinburgh Seven sat their first exams in physiology and chemistry. Four of them obtained honours, because they're yeah, fucking they smart, and one of them, Edith Petchy, came first in the whole year, in yes, her whole yeah. year in medicine. She beat all of the men, and yes. she was top of her class. Now, traditionally, that person, the top of the class in your first year, would be awarded a thing called the Hope Scholarship. But professors, particularly this guy called Sir Robert Christison, thought, I know, he's a bad egg. Watch (laughs) out for him. They thought it would provoke the male students if a woman was awarded the scholarship. Maybe provoke them into studying harder? Maybe. Jesus. So they decided to give it to a male student who had got a lower grade because they didn't want to provoke him. Hate everything. I know. (laughs) It sucks. So yeah, this dude, Professor Christensen, was a, an all-round poo face. <laughs> he, he, argued, <laughs> he argued against the women attending mixed classes, because that kept coming up. The women were like, oh, can we just please just, just come the to the normal classes, yeah. because this is really annoying. Um, and he suggested that any woman pursuing a medical career must be basely inclined, or a Magdalene. He was was a screaming misogynist. Yeah. Yeah. So he ran a smear campaign against the women and he... Oh my God! Yeah. And he like turned faculty members and students against them. So when they started, it was kind of okay. Like they were just kind of flying under the radar a bit. But then this guy was like stirring up trouble and men started to catcall them, to slam doors in their faces, to creepily oh follow them home, oh God. send them hate mail, fuck up their front door. Like, they did graffiti oh stuff God. on their front door. They blew smoke in their faces. Just all this crap. So just all the general things women Pretty encounter much in everyday lives. All the lives. normal yeah. things that men do to women. Still. Still. <laughs> yes. It's horrible. And and I can just, vis- I can just picture it because I yeah. know what that... I know what that is. It's because it still happens. You've been in those situations. Yeah, exactly. So they had to go to and from their classes in a group. Like they just started traveling. They were all living in this house in Buckloo Street and they just, as a pack, just went to class all at the same time to protect each other. It's horrible. And then there's this thing called the Surgeon's Hall Riot. So this is escalating and escalating and escalating. And... One morning, they arrived at Surgeon's Hall, which I was actually at the other day for a, a lecture on tuberculosis. Surgeon's Hall. Isn't it pretty? I have complicated feelings about it, but it's so interesting. It's gorgeous. I, I love it. But yeah, in 1870, as the Edinburgh Seven were approaching Surgeon's Hall, they were on Nicholson Street, and they were met by a howling mob of 700 misogynists. Jesus! Yes pelting them with rubbish and mud, just throwing shit at them. Um, And they tried to get into the gates at Surgeon's Hall, but they were slammed in their faces from the inside, so no one inside would let them in. So they were trapped outside with this 700-strong crowd of crazy people. And they they were stuck at the gate, and they they were just hemmed in by terrifying, horrible men. Um, and then a sympathetic student from inside rushed out and unlocked the gate and let them Thank in. God. Thank goodness for whoever that was. Um, Doing the bare minimum. A few good men. Oh, <laughs> one, one nice guy. Um, so 
it was horrible, but this incident turned opinion in their favour. Oh, so the press, really? yeah, mm. the press was really on their side, which Good. is interesting. Yeah, because they um, could easily have been horrible, not. exactly. Yes. But yeah, they considering it sounds like the university wasn't on their side. I know, yeah. So yeah, the press started writing really positive articles about them and really slamming this Christensen guy and saying he was awful. Good. Um, and male well, students. And male students started to be like, oh, we have to really step up. So they started acting as voluntary bodyguards. They just walked with the Keep women. protecting from... the women against you, dickheads. Yeah, I know. Anyway, yeah, but like, good. I'm they, glad well, they were people pre- stepped up. Yeah, <laughs> protecting them against their dickhead yep. <laughs> fellow class people. Good. So, yeah, they just made sure they got safely from home to class and back good. again. Um, so they kept learning, but in 1873, the University of Edinburgh, in its wisdom, decided that it didn't really want to grant them degrees. <laughs> so oh they were like, you've pay- been taking their money yeah, for three years. Yeah, yeah. So you've done all this learning, we've taken your money, but nah. You get nothing for it. We just, nah. So they were like, ugh, fuck it. And they just, they went off to the continent to study medicine in civilized places. Um, So they went Mm. to Bern or Paris and they were actually acknowledged for what they learned and they were granted degrees by those universities. In the end, it was the Irish College of Physicians who was the first first university in the British Isles to grant women degrees. So somewhere in the Republic of Ireland now (laughs) was the first place because Britain was so far behind. Yeah. Um... So, in 1878, Jax Blake, the leader of the Edinburgh Seven, returned to Edinburgh and became the city's first woman doctor. She had her own practice in the new town, um, and she also established a clinic for poor patients who couldn't afford medical treatment, usually, um, which became Brunsfield Hospital near you. Oh, cute. Yeah, really cool. And she also set up the Edinburgh School of Medicine for Women to nice. fix the problem that she yes. had encountered in the past and make sure that women could study medicine. Good on her. Which is pretty cool. That's awesome. So, now here's a really cool little twist. Jamie's amazing sister, who is also called Claire. Yes. It's a good name. A great name. She will be graduating as a doctor from Edinburgh Uni this July. Oh, cool. Which is very exciting. And as if that couldn't get any better, they are awarding the Edinburgh Seven posthumous degrees at her graduation that's so exciting so students are volunteering to go and pick up the degrees for these amazing women who were so brave i know me too it's incredible that's a really good acknowledgement of the failure to support them in the past exactly so trying to sort of make a bit of a reparation yeah that's fantastic so i tried to find out what the gender balance is like these days at the medical school at edinburgh uni Largely women, I'm assuming. Well, yeah, I couldn't find exact figures, mm. but I know that there are about a third more women in undergraduate courses than men at Edinburgh Uni, and almost twice as many in postgraduate courses. Mm. And I spoke to Claire, and she said she thinks her year is about 60, 40 women, yeah. men. So women are overtaking men at most universities yeah. in medical degrees these days. Yeah. And then I wondered whether that sort of pulled through to actual practicing doctors in the UK. Um, and it kind of doesn't. So mm. the proportion of NH doctors who are women has grown every year since 2009, um, but only 45% of practicing doctors are women right now. So, I wonder if that's skewed by the fact that so many NHS doctors are not British. Mm, well, it doesn't matter if they're 
but British I just mean China. like because it's not about who was here studying. Oh, I see. And who it's more about who has access to immigration and things like mm. that because so many NHS doctors are from the EU or yeah, Commonwealth yeah, yeah, yeah. countries. Um, but one of the interesting things, and this is like reflected across every industry, but women make up like three quarters of NHS staff. So yeah. the NHS is run by women. Well, <laughs> supported. It, it's by, supported by yeah. women, but it's run by men. It's run on the because, backs of women. Yes, yeah. because they are still the minority of senior roles. So yeah. they hold just thirty-seven percent of senior management roles, and surgery is still really dominated by men. Only twenty percent of surgeons are women. Yes. So that it's a bit of a boys club. Yeah. yeah. So there's still a long way to go and still a lot to fix there because yeah, those, those workers who are the three quarters of the NHS are not paid well. Yeah. Um, and those surgeons probably are paid well. So yes. there's still a lot of bias going on Interesting. in medicine. So wow. that is the Edinburgh seven. That was fascinating. Yeah. And in terms like, uplifting and enraging i know and i just want to dedicate that to claire who i just think is amazing to have done all that incredible study and to be becoming a doctor and continuing this incredible legacy of women studying medicine and being absolute bosses and i thought it was really interesting so those the edinburgh seven they were the first undergraduates in britain yes and they're medical students which i think is interesting that that is the first thing that women go for that we're like okay we're starting to get a bit of power we're starting to be able to maybe go to uni what's the first thing just fucking go all out what's the most important thing right where we have the biggest impact control over our own bodies yes (laughs) just at a base level having that knowledge and that power of how human bodies work seems to be the first thing really I I would say that's that's probably the most important thing yeah yeah so I just so thought that cool. was fascinating. Yes. What will you be teaching us about today, Claire? Well, I have a cracking story for you, Ooh, Eleanor. So exciting. This comes to us courtesy of my housemate, Kat, mm-hmm. who told me about it. And I just stared at her fucking gobsmacked the entire <laughs> time she was telling me. I was just like, how is any of this? How? Why? How? So I'm going to tell you about that one time that America invaded Britain. What? Right? Whoa! Yes! <laughs> That one time? Yeah. <laughs> Never heard of it. Exactly. So there's a dude called John Paul Jones, mm-hmm. and he attacked the city of Whitehaven. Whoa. Right? Is that where Dracula came in? Ignore me. I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you know that scene in Dracula where he lands in the UK? No, no. I think that's on the wrong side. Oh, I see. Yeah, so Whitehaven's on the west. I see, Rash. So we need to start with a little bit of a story about John Paul Jones. Okay. He was born as just John Paul on July 16th, 1747, near Kirkbean on the southwest coast of Scotland, which... Kirkbean! I do not know how you pronounce that, but I don't want to know, because I want it to be called Kirkbean. Uh, sorry, Lauren, I'm not looking at the pronunciation of that one. So he started his maritime career at the age of 13, sailing out of Whitehaven, which Mm -hmm. is in the northern English county of Cumberland. Mm -hmm. And he was apprenticed aboard the ship called Friendship. Just like so cute. Imagine that being like your first sailing adventure on the Friendship ship. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He had an older brother called William Paul who had married and settled in Friedrichsburg, Virginia. John Paul and William Paul. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting name. And he sailed to Virginia a lot when he was younger. Oh, John Paul. Cool. 
Yeah, I don't know why. I don't know if it was because his brother was there or if that was just coincidence. He's <laughs> visiting his brother. Yeah. Um, so he sailed on a bunch of different ships and eventually became first mate. Then, for some reason, he ditched his ship in Jamaica and made his own way back to Scotland. Huh. And then eventually got, like, another gig on a boat. I don't know. Like, he just left the crew and... He wasn't in charge, but he just, like, he just ditched it and was, like, on my own. Maybe he had a fight with someone. Probably. It's... Yeah. The more you find out about him, you'll be like, that's probably what happened. Um, So then, 1768, and he's on a ship called John. No relation. (laughs) Um, And he suddenly gets his huge career break thanks to called Yellow Fever... Killing the captain and the first mate. Cholera and yellow, yellow fever, fever creating opportunities for <laughs> aspiring young sailors slash doctors. Oh, no, it's great. Um, so he took charge and sailed the ship back to port. And as a reward, the um, owners gave him, like, made him master of the ship and its crew wow. and gave him 10% of the cargo. Nice. Yeah, no, I guess apparently the past, when that happened, things just fell apart and people went rogue. I don't wow. know. Apparently they were really, really thankful. Yeah, cool. So he led two voyages to the West Indies before running into problems. So on the second voyage, he had a crew member flogged and was accused of being, quote, unnecessarily cruel. Mm. Um, at first everyone was a bit like, oh, you're, not, you're a bit of a dick, but whatever. But then the victim died a few weeks later, <sighs> oh. which might have actually been from yellow fever again, but probably um, not helped by the flogging. Exactly. And imagine. it made him look really bad. And it was all this huge deal because the guy who died wasn't just any old crew member. He was an adventurer from this really rich and influential Scottish family. Oh no. Yeah. So he was arrested for his involvement in this man's death and imprisoned back in his home county in Scotland. Oops. And he was later released on bail. Um, he didn't seem to serve any time or get convicted of anything, but like the whole thing like ruined his reputation. So he left Scotland mm-hmm. in command of a vessel called Betsy <laughs> that had guns. That, I don't know, there was a bunch of stuff about like Betsy. Betsy. <laughs> Betsy had like things and turrets and something about portholes, and I didn't what? understand it, but she had guns. She had guns. Yeah, she's a big and fat turrets. ship. I don't know. There was a lot of things like the word sloop. I didn't know it. I don't know. I've been on a real like naval bender with research yeah, stuff lately, and I still don't know anything about it's, ships. Is <laughs> sleep like a smaller? Probably. Anyway, who knows? We could speculate on this for hours. We don't. Neither of us knows. <laughs> and never will. <laughs> um, and he sailed Betsy around <laughs> Tobago for like eighteen months, or out of a port in Tobago for eighteen Sounds months. Sounds nice, romantic. Yeah. Well, this sweet tropical working holiday came to an end when he killed a crew member. Wow. Called Blackton with a sword in an argument over wages. Okay. He sounds like got a some bit anger of a dick. issues. Yeah, he just oh, he sounds a bit useless. He claimed years later in a letter to none other than Benjamin Franklin. Oh wow. That um it was self-defense. Mm-hmm. But he didn't want to go through a trial in an admiral's court because the last time he'd done that, his the family his first victim was really influential, so I think he was worried um, things would yeah. it would look bad on him again. Yeah. So instead, he runs away to Friedrichsburg, Virginia, which is where his brother had settled. Mm-hmm. Said brother had recently died and had their oh. heirs, so John Paul Jones left his own fortune to go and take up the estate of his dead brother. Wow. And this was about the time he adds Jones to his surname to evade the law. Oh, wow. So he just made it up. Yeah. He just he was John Paul, and he was like, I'm John Paul Oh, sorry. So his, his whole name is John Paul. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I yes. misunderstood. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. It is a bit of a weird one. It's not like Jean Paul. No, it's... John just John Paul. Paul, Mr. Paul. Right, so yeah. his brother was just William, William Paul. Paul. Makes sense. Okay, Mr. Got it. Paul the Elder. Fab. So he just adds Jones to the end. Like, doesn't become John Jones. He's just John Paul, John Jones. Paul Jones. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. 
So uh, apparently that meant the law couldn't find him now. <laughs> People were easily tricked back then. Apparently so. Mm. Uh, and from that time on, America became, quote, the country of his fond election, as he later described it. Oh, cool. Yes. Nice. So at the time, America was staging a revolution against British rule. This is yeah. was during the American Revolution. Cool. So JPJ joins the fight. JPJ with Alexander Hamilton. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I feel sad that I can't make any actual Hamilton no, references in this story. All he's not I know, cool enough. I, I don't know yeah, well, JPJ just didn't do anything cool enough to be um, worthy of being... Hamiltonized. Hamiltonized, yeah. <laughs> um, so not a lot is known about this period of his life. It's not known if he joined the revolution because of, like, an unwavering commitment to his belief in no taxation without representation. Or... Or if just being a farmer on a plantation did not turn out to be as fun as he thought it would be. Or maybe his lust for blood... Yeah, could have been that. He sounds a bit murderous. Yeah. But he did join. So he leaves for Philadelphia shortly after settling in North America mm-hmm. to volunteer in the uh, newly founded Continental Navy. Mm. So this is in 1775. Mm-hmm. Um, and his Wikipedia page is definitely written by some American Revolutionary War <gasps> buff because Whoa. they just kept throwing around names and dates like nobody's business. And I was like, I do not know who these people are and I am not reading their Wikipedia pages too to find many. out. Way too many. So apparently he only got into the Navy because he got a recommendation from some guy I'd never heard of mm. that apparently was important <laughs> in the Navy or in the revolution at the time. Right. Like no one seemed very interested in him, but they were really desperate for officers and stuff. So okay. some guy vouched for him and ah. that's how he got into the Navy. Wait. Yes. So he's in the Navy. Yay. He's like, this is, this is where it gets interesting. <gasps> This I'm more, I mean... Yeah, well, I'm glad. <laughs> but I, I, in the back of my head, I've got the whole invading exactly. England thing. Well, this is where it's America invading England because he is a, now an American naval officer. Even though Otherwise, it would just be a English. disgruntled Scotsman invading England. Well, he's, he's Scottish. Sorry, Scottish. I forgot. Yeah. <gasps> well, he sails out of Whitehaven and people often talk about him being from the north of England, but he's not. He's technically mm. Scottish. He just sailed out of the north of England. Yeah. Right. So, fun fact... Mm-hmm. He sailed from the Delaware River in February 1766 aboard Alfred um, on the Continental Navy's... just have person names. Stupid so names. Alfred. <laughs> so this was the Continental Navy's maiden cruise, and it was on board this vessel that Jones took the honour of hoisting the first US ensign, the Grand Union flag, wow. over a naval vessel. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so he got that honour. Um, and at first I was like, this should have been an American, though. And I was like, wait, none of them were American. Yeah. They were all just Brits. Exactly. <laughs> So he had lots of success in the Navy, got lots of promotions and stuff, but he had a like bit of a thing with authority. Uh-huh. So he's in some feud with the commander-in-chief of the Navy about, like, something. Right. And so they, like, put him on shore and they were just like, stop it. Stop being annoying. Stop. Mm-hmm. Stop being the worst. But then he was eventually given command of, like, a much smaller ship to, like, put him in his place. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the newly constructed USS Ranger. Uh-huh. Much cooler name. Yeah. Betsy. <laughs> Alfred. Yeah. Uh, so he sailed the Ranger to France to help with the American commission that was there with naval strategies. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when he became pals with Ben Franklin. Wow. So he was promised a bigger ship, but then the British apparently stole it from the um, Dutch shipyard where it was oh. being built. Bastards. Or like blocked the sail or something. So he yeah. was really pissy again. Yeah, fair which enough. Which I feel like this whole story then just becomes his personal vendetta against the British for stealing his big ship. Um, he never says it, but I feel like that's what was going on. <laughs> um, but on April 10th, 1778, John Paul Jones set sail from Brest, France for the western coast of Britain. 
Um, and he has a bit of success here, like, attacking British merchant ships in the Irish. Wow. So he was just going, hang on, was he meant to be doing this, or was he just Yeah, I could not find out why he was sailed out of France, but it seemed to be like he was there... He was supposed to be there. He was supposed to be there as an American naval officer. Just shit-stirring. Yeah, basically. Wow. I don't know. So, but I couldn't find out under what orders and whose orders, but it seemed like he was supposed to do that. Mm. Yeah, there was... I don't know. It's very confusing. Like, it seems like... I can't tell who's telling him who to do what at this point. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So, then... On April 17th, so like a week later, mm-hmm. he persuades his crew to join him in this attack on Whitehaven, the town where his maritime career had begun. Whoa, this feels so personal. Yeah, right? Yes. Right? Doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. But his crew, like, were not into this idea. Well, fair. <laughs> yeah. He later wrote in his memoirs about the poor command qualities of his senior officers, mm-hmm. which he didn't put in his official report, but he wrote that, um, quote, their object, they said, was gain not honour. They were poor. Instead of encouraging the morale of the crew, they excited them to disobedience. They persuaded them that they had the right to judge whether a measure that was proposed to them was good or bad. Mm. So it kind of almost sounds like they're a pirate crew. Like, yeah. They're making the crew agree to do on everything before they do it, which wouldn't happen on a naval ship. It's like a democracy. But on a naval ship, it would be the... Yes, what Captain says goes. Exactly. And so JPG's sulking because he's like, no one's doing what I'm telling them to do. I just want to attack Whitehaven. (laughs) So weird. (sighs) So his, the argument he put to his crew was that the British were already fighting an unpopular war and it was time for them to finally feel the cost at home. Like, uh-huh. you know, okay. we have to make them suffer right. and feel what it's like. Like, this war is already unpopular and if we make them really feel it at home, like, people will be it's like, going to turn the tide, yeah. it's going to end the war. But I really just feel like this is him going, they stole my ship! Like, <laughs> I hate them. Yeah, he just he does not come off well in history. I don't know how, what he was really like, but... He's not remembered well. <laughs> but, like, immediately his top lieutenants protested. So Ezra Green, the surgeon on board, argued, quote, nothing could be got by burning poor people's property. Yeah. On you, Ezra. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. So none of this mattered anyway because they had to abandon their plans because, like, bad winds pushed them back towards the coast of Ireland. Great. And they tried instead for like a late night attack on a Royal Navy ship that they heard was anchored nearby, but that didn't work out because like in the dark they misjudged when to drop the anchor. Oh no. And then they were like in the wrong spot, so they had to like cut anchor and run. Oh no. It just he just does not sound very smart. Nope. But when they were running away from this Royal Navy ship, mm-hmm. the wind shifted in their favour ah. and pushed the ranger back across the sea towards Whitehaven, so they were like yeah, let's go for it. Let's attack Whitehaven. Wow. Yes. With this Navy ship on their tail. Well, I don't know if it was necessarily chasing them, but it was aware that they were around. Wow. It was just like, what are you doing? So he, John Paul Jones himself, led the assault with two boats of 15 men. Oh my God. But that's out of the 150 people that were on board his ship. Like he had 150 crew members. He could only convince 30 of them to come with him. (laughs) Like, they were just super not into it. The bloodthirstiest. Yeah. Mm. I think just the most, like, oh, fine, if we have to, <laughs> shut up already. So this was just after midnight on April 23rd, 1778. Wow. Um, so the plan was to set fire to and sink all of Whitehaven's ships that Aww. were anchored in the harbour. Probably fishing boats and stuff. Well, it was, like, an industrial town. Oh, so okay. there were two to four hundred 
wooden vessels that consisted of a full merchant fleet and many coal transporters. Okay. So it was strategically a pretty good choice. Yeah. Yeah. But it still feels like it was probably personal because, I mean, this is... Britain at the time was just... The whole coast was just important ports that you could have made of. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Um, So they also hoped to terrorise the townspeople by lighting further fires. No, no. I know. So rude. So apparently it was a clear but cold and frosty night. Ooh, I can see it. Yes. Mist coming off. Is the moon out? Surely. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) So the two boats were put into water, filled with the 30 men, and they were armed with pistols and cutlasses. John Paul Jones took charge of one boat and his Swedish second-in-command, which was one of the only people he trusted, Lieutenant Mayer, mm. was in the other one. It really sounds like a pirate raid, doesn't right? it? Right! like it's Vikings so or something. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> due to ill winds and an ebb tide, it took them three hours of rowing to oh, reach the harbour. no. They tried to land once, but the shore was too rocky and the wind was too strong, so they had to keep rowing for another half an hour. And by this point, the sun was starting to rise. Oh, no. Just sounds like a shambles, the whole thing. Not super confident, is he? No. JPJ. So the intention was for one of the boat's worth of men to burn the ships in the northern half of the harbour, uh-huh. while JPJ led a raid on the fort to spike the guns, uh-huh. because um, it was really important to get rid of the guns yes. so they could escape. Yes. Um... So, but they had to take the guards out first so they, before they could get to the guns. So, JPJ apparently led this mission himself and was successful. Um, he left Lieutenant Mayer guarding, guarding his boat, which turned out to be wise because, according to Mayer, the rest of the crew planned to ditch Jones and nick his boat if he didn't succeed. Wow. <laughs> like, they were just, they were still, even though they were there on the raid, they were just not, they didn't believe in no. it, they weren't really into it. Yeah. I don't know why any of them went. I guess he was just very annoying. And it was easier to agree. Yeah. But he was successful. He managed to subdue all the guards and tie them up. He didn't kill anyone at that point, thankfully. Yeah. And apparently him standing on the battlements of the harbour and declaring victory roused the men's spirits. And they Mm -hmm. all decided to actually join the mission. (laughs) Um, So he took his midshipman, Joe Green. They spiked the guns. And they sent the rest of the men to burn the ships. (laughs) So while the captain was disabling the guns, I think it was the other boat load of men Mm -hmm. landed at the old quay. And... (laughs) Headed straight to the pub and got drunk. <gasps> oh, <Yep. laughs> no. So they basically went to the pub, broke in, scared the innkeeper and his family into staying in their quarters, and just, just <laughs> drank the raided pub the pub. Yeah. Oh, and got so really funny. Drunk. Priorities. Yeah. Yeah. So apparently <laughs> they went to the pub because their lanterns are run out of fuel oh. and they wouldn't have been able to light the fires. Nah. But whatever their intentions were, they got very sidetracked. So, um, yeah, they just did not seem into this whole thing. No. So they did eventually leave the pub, but by this point, like, dawn was breaking, and, like, they were like, shit, we need to get this over with. So they concentrated their efforts on the coal ship Thompson in the Uh hopes that that would burst into flames and that would spread to all the adjacent vessels because they were all grounded by low tide, so they were stuck in the mud. So it was a smart time to burn them all because they couldn't float away, they couldn't be, like, pushed out to sea or anything. Yeah, but um, somehow, amidst all the confusion, one of Jones' men's one one of Jones's men, David Freeman, slipped away and started knocking on the doors um, on Marlborough Street to warn the town that fires had been started in the wow. ships. Wow, they are really not all together. They do on not this. like him. They do not support him. They're so not amazing. So funny. I mean, like it was a really dangerous situation, and like you do have to give him some credit for seeing the advantages of setting Whitehaven alight because. 
the ships were all full of coal and they were next to coal stains which kept like large reservoirs of coal in them mm. it was low water so the entire fleet was packed really close together mm-hmm. like lots of, of warehouses were along them that were full of combustibles like yeah. rum and sugar and tobacco but i mean it's also like you could also say that pretty much any harbor really yeah. so i don't know how much of this is jpj being smart and just harbors are a good target generally yeah. <laughs> but the town was really aware of these dangers and they had two fire engines. Oh, yes. So they were immediately deployed and with valiant exertions by all classes of people <laughs> working together, they were able to extinguish the flames. Woo, fire engines! Yes. <laughs> They'd thrown matches down into a few other ships, but they hadn't taken hold. And I read a newspaper article from the time that said, Thus were the malicious attempts of those daring incendiaries frustrated. Incendiaries. <laughs> Yeah, so the townspeople put out the fires, were just like, what the fuck? Apparently, some of them recognised Jones from when he was living, <laughs> like, sailing in and out of Whitehaven all the time. Oh, dear. So, Jones and most of his crew, except David Freeman, who was being grilled by the town magistrate, were like, shit, and got out of there and sailed back to the ranger. Yeah. Or rode back to the ranger, rather. Um, and didn't get shot by cannons, since spiking the guns was the only successful part of the mission. And then... After that, they all got back on the boat, sailed to Scotland, and tried to kidnap an earl. Why? But uh, they're still just on this mission to, like, terrorise people. Why? At this point, they're acting very piratey. Yes. Because they wanted to kidnap this earl, but he wasn't home. Pregnant <laughs> wife was. Oh, no. I know, but she apparently just, like, dealt with it and was just like, what do you want? <laughs> and got her butler to give them a sackle of coal that he'd topped off with a few pieces of family silver. Nice. To trick them. And they were like, oh, that'll do. We'll take that. So they did. But JPJ himself bought back that silver from an auction later on and returned it to the Earl after the war because he felt bad. He's a weird sounding dude. Yeah, I can't work it out. This is very confusing. It's very strange. But yeah, so they sailed off to Scotland to try and kidnap this Earl. It didn't work. And I think they eventually just sailed back to America. It was really hard to find out where they went after that. Yeah, but that was right. the last time that they tried to do anything in Britain. Okay. Yeah. So the British newspapers called the Ranger and its crew an American privateer ship. Oh, yeah. Well, sounds yes. correct. But it wasn't because they didn't have letters of mark, like we talked about oh, in the yes. pilot episode. So technically not a privateer ship. It just, just sounds like a like dickhead. Like, yeah. Acting like a privateer when he Gone wasn't. Rogue. Yeah. They were also reporting that the plot was hatched by the French and that he'd been escorted through the channel by this huge warship for the express purpose of coming to Whitehaven, but that wasn't true. It was just uh, the whole up thing. shit against the French. Exactly, mm. and this whole plot just seems to have been JPJ's strange, mad idea. Wow. Yeah, but it had a huge impact in Britain in regards to morale and also defence allocation. So coastal defences and militias were all beefed up, and that may have helped prevent a French invasion later on in the century. Whoa. Yeah. So, Mad. yeah, because they realised how vulnerable they all were. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the Lloyd's Post in Whitehaven wrote, quote, A number of expresses have been dispatched to all the capital seaports in the kingdom where any depredations are likely to be made. All strangers in this town are, by an order of the magistrates, to be secured and examined. Similar notices have been forwarded through the country, and in short, every caution taken that the present alarming affair could suggest. So people reacted really strongly to it. Yeah. They took it really seriously and they were like, this is dangerous. Yeah. And strangers in sea towns were like stopped and interrogated. Oh, and yeah. Gosh. It's so interesting. Um, but Tim McGraw, a Revolutionary War naval historian, said, quote, the act itself didn't help win the war, but the reaction helped end the war. Mm. I thought it was interesting. Yeah. Yeah, right. Um, and then in 1999... 
The then Harbour Master of Whitehaven, together with the Harbour Commissioner and an officer from the American Navy, signed a proclamation for giving the 1778 raid by John Paul Jones and the American Navy. Which I thought was cute. That's sweet. Yeah. As for John Paul Jones, he joined the Russian Navy eventually, (laughs) retired to Paris, died of kidney disease aged 45. 45? Yeah, he didn't last long. No. He was buried in France. And then in 1906, his grave was rediscovered and he was reinterred in this really elaborate crypt on the campus of the U.S. Naval Academy, where he rests to this day. Gosh. Yep, that was that one time that America invaded Britain. (laughs) What? Yeah. Ta-da! Total harebrained scheme. Madness. Insane. That's really, like, flipped my concept of history on its head. Wow. Don't you think? Yeah, yeah. Actually, I guess I kind of do that. For I me. love learning random stuff like that. I had no just... idea this ever happened. No. I studied the American Revolution at school. Yeah, right. We did. I did like my final exams on it, and this never came up. Yeah. I mean, I guess like it's not so much relevant from the American side of things, but I feel like it doesn't fit into a narrative. Well, the narrative of the American Revolution, maybe yeah. like. It's a bit... It wasn't to do with honour and it wasn't no. to do with... It was all to do with individual gain, which... Yeah. Which is kind American, of... It's, is the American yeah. Revolution because it was all about capitalism, but they were all about Freedom, representation really. and democracy yeah. as, like, a bigger just, thing. I think it's really funny that democracy massively backfired there. <laughs> <Against> <laughs> like, yes. Yay, democracy. Oh, wait, this doesn't work in every single situation yes. all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm glad his crew could see what a dumbass plan that was, yeah. though. Like, it just... <laughs> sounded ill thought out and foolish and yeah it just seems like it wouldn't necessarily have affected the british so much as just no. the people of whitehaven yes yeah so um yeah that one was really fascinating so yeah. hilarious and bizarre i love it yeah so much good old history nice one claire thanks so if you want to hear more history tidbits, you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts, including YouTube. Yay! Please rate, review, and subscribe so other history buffs can find us. If you want to know what sources we used, please go to our SoundCloud page. The link is in the description. Today's homework is to thank all the amazing female doctors you know yeah. for how hard they've had to fight to get to where we are today. Yeah. Yeah.